This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. In October 2016, 30-year-old Michael Mansell and 22-year-old James Dryden Jr. loaded a stockpile of weapons into their car. Their shopping spree had taken them to numerous gun shops in Coffee County, Georgia, some 200 miles southeast of Atlanta. It had roused the attention of an off-duty agent from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. He immediately contacted the sheriff's office, Local officers then followed the men and discovered that they were housing military equipment and controlled substances at their local residence. The police issued a warrant for their arrest and waited for the right moment to infiltrate. A SWAT team hid for a stakeout just outside the house. Finally, late at night, Michael and James stepped outside and climbed into their car. Before they could speed away, the SWAT team rushed onto the scene. The arrest went off without a hitch. Michael and James didn't fight back. When investigators surveyed the weapons cache, they found four AR-15 rifles, four Glock handguns, a Remington rifle, and between 3,000 to 4,000 rounds of ammunition. The police asked Michael and James why they needed so many guns. The answer? They planned to take over the HARP facility in Gakona, Alaska. Michael claimed the facility was storing people's souls. As outlandish as Michael's answer was, it was as good a theory as any. Many have claimed that HARP is a top-secret facility with a purpose so obscure and so closely guarded, no one in the civilian world knows what it does. It could house a death ray, a weather-controlling machine, or it might just be designed to usher in the apocalypse. 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. Yeah, but sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the HARP Research Center. Don't be fooled by the gentle acronym. It stands for High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, a government-funded laboratory in the North Slope of Alaska. The secretive program is so clandestine, we still don't know its purpose, even today. This week, we'll follow HARP's history and the mysterious electromagnetic objectives that the U.S. government kept quiet for decades. Next week, we'll investigate what HARP really does. Conspiracy theories abound, claiming HARP can control the weather, trigger earthquakes, or be used as a mind control device. From the outside looking in, the HARP Research Center looks like a field of misshapen wind turbines with TV antennas. But this strange-looking facility isn't harnessing green energy, and it's not delivering entertainment to nearby households. The antenna array, which covers 30 to 40 acres of land, is actually an IRI, or Ionospheric Research Instrument. Essentially, it's a high-powered transmitter that directs radio waves up at the ionosphere. Well, that's the part of the Earth's atmosphere where air meets space. It ranges from about 53 to 370 miles above the planet's surface. Scientists are curious about the ionosphere for two reasons. First, the particles in the ionosphere behave erratically. They've been known to interact with terrestrial weather patterns in unpredictable ways. The science behind it can be complicated, but it helps if you imagine that sometimes the sky is water and other times it's Pepsi. If scientists were to throw a Mentos candy up at the atmosphere, the Pepsi would bubble and foam, but the water would not. The same holds true for the plasma in the ionosphere. It's possible that weather patterns on Earth can affect its geomagnetic storms. And sometimes the plasma does nothing at all. Researchers aren't entirely sure why that is, but they want to find out. Even more important, they want to know if they can channel that ionic energy. HARP's second research objective pertains to radio propagation, or the way waves travel from one point to another. Since the ionosphere reflects radio transmissions at low frequencies, military, airline, and government personnel use it to send messages over long distances. 
The sender shoots the radio transmission up and the ionosphere bounces it to where it needs to go. Unfortunately, these kinds of long-distance communications aren't 100% reliable. That's because the ionosphere is often disturbed by solar radiation. So if scientists could predict where and when disturbances happen, they could improve low-frequency radio technology. But it'll take more research to figure out how. There's a lot we still don't know about the ionosphere, but it's not for lack of trying. In fact, our modern studies stem from 200 years' worth of theories about electromagnetic radiation. In 1800, Alessandro Volta tried to harness the power of electricity. He invented the world's first battery and learned how to direct electric power through cables and wires. He proved that it was possible to store and transmit energy and inspired countless other scientists to explore electric powers. You've probably heard of Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein. Their technological contributions were vital. But one name that often goes forgotten is James Clerk Maxwell. The physicist was fascinated by an idea that scientist Michael Faraday had in the early 1830s, that electricity was affected by magnets and that light was an electromagnetic wave. Maxwell took that concept and ran with it. While teaching physics at King's College in London, he scrawled out the mathematical calculations that would later become known as Maxwell's equations. With these formulas, Maxwell proposed the existence of electromagnetic waves, composed of particles called electrons. We can't see them, of course, but sometimes, like when we hold two magnets together, we can feel these particles repelling each other. Maxwell theorized that light, electricity, and magnetism are all products of that invisible force. He called it electromagnetism. Many scientists, including Einstein, put Maxwell's equations to the test. But one inventor would shake the world with them, literally. In 1884, Serbian physicist Nikola Tesla immigrated to the United States to work for Thomas Edison. But after Tesla and Edison had some creative disagreements, the two parted ways. So far as Tesla's journal excerpts are concerned, he and Edison were enemies for life. Even though he was no longer working under the well-known inventor of the light bulb, Tesla continued his electric research and made some significant discoveries of his own. In the early 1900s, Tesla began claiming that he could wirelessly transmit electric power anywhere in the world. He theorized it was possible without wires or cords. He could hypothetically direct energy through the air. Tesla's technology was merely theoretical, but its intentions to shoot electromagnetic energy into the sky and affect change at the Earth's surface would be very similar to the mission of HARP just decades later. Nearly 30 years after Tesla first made those claims, he seemingly made a breakthrough. 
On July 11, 1934, the New York Times ran a story headlined, Tesla at 78 bears new death beam. Death beam was their term for his hypothetical energy ray. But once again, Tesla's claims outpaced reality. He never produced the weapon, but that didn't stop Pulp Fiction from running with the concept. In fact, the first Superman comic, published in September 1941, even referenced it. In an issue titled The Mad Scientist, Superman fought Nikola Tesla, who terrorized New York City with his electrothanasia death ray. Of course, the comic was a work of fiction, but Tesla didn't downplay his technology's real death ray capabilities. He claimed his particle beam could be used for peace or destruction. And with World War II raging in Europe, the U.S. government was interested in the military applications for Tesla's death ray. On the morning of January 5th, 1943, Nikola Tesla visited the U.S. War Department. We don't know what was discussed, but phone records reveal that the War Department contacted the FBI shortly after the meeting. Three days later, on January 7, 1943, 86-year-old Nikola Tesla was found dead in his hotel room. Officially, he died from a blockage of an artery in the heart. But the timing makes Tesla's death fairly suspicious. After all, he was harboring some very special intelligence. And when his nephew, Sava Kosanovich, rushed to Tesla's room at the New Yorker a day after his death, it was clear someone else had gotten there first. His safe was emptied. Tesla's research papers and plans for the death ray were gone. These missing files were never found. The next day, representatives from the Office of Alien Property visited Tesla's room and seized all of his remaining possessions. The department officially handled items of interest that belonged to immigrants or America's enemies. But it's unlikely they had jurisdiction in this case because Tesla had been an American citizen for decades. Which leads us to wonder whether Tesla was declared an enemy of the state after his visit to the U.S. War Department. It's possible, especially if Tesla's death ray really existed and was as powerful as he claimed. And the U.S. government certainly pursued similar technology after his death. In 1958, a top-secret project codenamed Seesaw launched. Its objective was to create a charged particle beam. More than 10 years and $27 million later, the project was discontinued. Their reasoning? High costs and technical problems. At least that's the official story. But roughly two decades later, a new top-secret program launched. Its official goals are a closely guarded secret, but the initiative, called HARP, might have been a continuation of Seesaw. Allegedly, they had the death ray and weren't shy about using it. Coming up, 
scientist Bernard Eastland develops mysterious patents for a top-secret government initiative. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1905, inventor Nikola Tesla announced he was developing a directed energy device. The press later dubbed it a death ray. He never publicly debuted this weapon, but that doesn't mean it didn't exist. Tesla died under suspicious circumstances in January 1943. And his dream of a directed energy device lived on in physicist Bernard Eastland. In the mid-1980s, he was well known for his previous work on controlled thermal nuclear research at the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. He'd also been a key researcher for the Strategic Defense Initiative, which developed defense systems against nuclear attacks. So it seemed random when oil corporation Arco reached out to him with a job offer. It had to do with an abundance of natural gas on their Gakona, Alaska property. 30 trillion cubic feet of it, to be exact. Well, that's enough to fill over 30 million Olympic pools. It would be too expensive to build a pipeline and transport the gas out of state. Eastland's job was to determine how the company should use all their excess gas, since selling it wasn't an option. After some study, Eastland proposed that Arco build a lab on that land and use the fuel for its operations. If you're confused about why a gas corporation would fund an Arctic science lab, it all came down to money. Arco wanted a client who'd need a large amount of gas. Rather than finding one that already existed, they created their own. That way, they could sell the gas to themselves and save on transportation costs, since the lab would be right over the gas fields. Since the facility would likely receive major government funding, Arco could even turn a profit while they burn their own fuel. Eastland's plan was business genius, but the prospect of seeing his inventions made real was a reward of another caliber. 
The facility would house an innovative technology that Eastland had previously only dreamed of creating, a hypothetical invention that could modify the weather or serve as a directed energy weapon. By firing a power beam at the sky, the device could disrupt satellite communications, confuse missile guidance systems, and even destroy flying targets. Or it could excite the ionosphere to trigger massive storms. To Eastland's delight, Arco was on board with his plan. With their approval, he began construction on the facility. The world had never seen technology like this before, so Eastland also had to develop and patent his ideas. In January 1985, 47-year-old Bernard Eastland applied for patent number 4,866,605. But four months later, in April, the Navy sealed his application under a secrecy order. This type of restriction is supposed to secure information that, if public, could be detrimental to national security. In other words, Eastland's invention was deemed too dangerous for the world to know about it. Some scientists would have called it quits if their patent application was intercepted by the U.S. government, but not Bernard Eastland. He brought in his attorney to speak with officials, the fight lasted over a year and a half, but on August 11, 1987, his electromagnetic apparatus patent was finally approved. With the green light, Arco founded a new branch and named it Advanced Power Technologies Incorporated, or APTI. This new department oversaw Eastland's facility and further developed and built on his theories. But Eastland's big ideas weren't universally beloved. APTI's president, Rami Shani, fired him from the project around 1989. Shani claimed Eastland's work was way out, perhaps because the physicist was talking to the media about modifying weather and sabotaging missiles. But those very capabilities outlined in his patents had caught the attention of government investors. In fact, those patents eventually came under federal control. The records are fuzzy on how U.S. defense personnel officially got involved with the Arctic Research Facility. But somehow, a federal initiative called HARP officially launched on December 13, 1989. As the story goes, Navy and Air Force officers attended a morning meeting discussing APTI's potential defense capabilities. Now, at this point, we should clarify that the facility was still under construction, and it couldn't generate nearly as much power as was necessary for Eastland's patented weather control death ray. But apparently, the military officials were intrigued by the possibilities that the facility represented. They promptly invited DARPA to another meeting later that day. Now, DARPA is an agency of the United States Department of Defense that develops emerging technologies for the military. And once they caught word of what APTI might be able to achieve, they were on board. They planned their own program, 
The High Frequency Active Auroral Ionosphere Research Program, or HARP, to utilize Eastland's research. In February 1990, executive summary plans for HARP circulated among leaders of U.S. defense operations. The Air Force Geophysics Laboratory and the Office of Naval Research put out a statement reading, The High Frequency Active Auroral Ionospheric Research Program, HARP, is especially attractive in that it will ensure that research in an emerging revolutionary technology area will be focused towards identifying and exploiting techniques to greatly enhance C3 capabilities. C3 refers to defense systems that strategically obtain, process, and disseminate information across military forces. For example, HARP could improve radio technologies, disturb missiles, send low-frequency pulses into any part of the Earth, and sabotage enemy communications. The facility's instruments might even be able to locate subterranean weaponry in other nations. The statement added, a key goal of the program is the identification and investigation of those ionospheric processes and phenomena that can be exploited for DOD purposes. In just one year's time, the project went from theory to reality. DARPA commissioned APTI to conduct the initial feasibility studies and began construction. APTI was run by a president living in Los Angeles, while its staff of 25 employees lived on the other side of the country in D.C. It was hard to say how they were overseeing a facility in Alaska, unless the private corporation was a front and ARCO wasn't really running it at all anymore. In addition, the company's annual sales were $5 million a year, APTI's HARP contract paid them about five times that much. Even more suspicious, in late 1993, ARCO spontaneously divested and sold APTI to E-Systems. E-Systems has been referred to as the central nervous system of U.S. intelligence. At the time, the company created everything from spy satellites to phone analysis programs. And now they were running HARP. A few months later, in 1994, the U.S. Senate insisted that the HARP facility increase its focus on EPT, or Earth-penetrating tomography. This technology would basically take X-rays of the ground and locate buried weaponry. Under threat of losing funding, HARP complied. At this point, we should pause to explain what was and wasn't possible for HARP. Theoretically, high-frequency energy could be shot into the ionosphere to disrupt weather patterns. That's what Bernard Eastland had originally developed it to do. But the hardware at the facility couldn't generate nearly enough power to do this. By contrast, EPT required a fraction of the energy. The Senate's insistence that HARP scan the Earth to find weapons was far more realistic than Eastland's earlier outlandish claims. That said, the facility still operated under the same core principles. It fired directed energy at places of interest. It was just that HARP was using a lot less energy than a so-called weather machine would need. The U.S. government never released any official findings on HARP's EPT applications. 
But the technology must have been promising because in 1995, E-Systems was acquired by Raytheon. They're currently the fourth largest contractor in the U.S. military industry. But all these acquisitions didn't slow down HARP's development. In 1996, Congress budgeted $10 million for them under the category nuclear counterproliferation. And that line item is for intelligence and military efforts to combat weapons of mass destruction. To justify the expense, the Department of Defense noted that HARP's transmitter was compatible with underground X-ray technology. But that was as detailed as the report got. There was no public record of any research the program conducted or any of the discoveries they made. The next year, the facility began what they refer to as campaigns, or two-week blocks of intensive activity. The first took place between February 27th and March 14th, 1997. And surprisingly, HARP invited researchers, students, radio fanatics, and even tour groups to the site. They weren't shying away from civilians anymore. Engineers taught their guests about ionospheric research technology. Other visitors participated in the first HARP radio listening test. That meant they got to hear HARP's distinct signal. But, of course, there was no discussion of the facility's military capabilities. 1997's last HARP campaign was in August, when NASA tested HARP's effects on its wind satellite. In simple terms, the wind satellite is in orbit around the Earth and tracks changes in our planet's magnetosphere. The researchers shot beams from harp to wind to see if they could disrupt the satellite. And their hypothesis was confirmed. Harp could sabotage satellite communications. Harp's military applications were clear. If needed, it could destroy other nations' satellite communications. But officials continued to perform demonstrations for the public. The facility held an open house on August 23rd and 24th, 1997. In addition, most of the research that HARP publicly conducted was available on the University of Alaska Fairbanks website. We have to wonder, if HARP was a top-secret defense base with highly sensitive information, why invite civilians? Unless the public invitation was an opportunity to quell conspiracy theories. Many consider the facility's transparency as proof that it's harmless. But sometimes the best hiding place is in plain sight. Unfortunately, that openness meant that foreign powers caught wind of the recent HARP developments. In February 1998, the European Parliament Committee on Foreign Affairs, Security and Defense Policy held public hearings on HARP in Brussels. The committee, which proposes legislation on security and defense for the EU, demanded further research. They wanted to examine HARP's objectives and its potential impacts on the environment. The U.S. offered no response. And because the European Commission lacked the jurisdiction, their efforts were ignored. In fact, 
Harp's development and construction were ramping up. In 1998, the high-frequency antenna array was completed. It featured 180 antennas arranged in a rectangular field that could direct energy into Earth's ionosphere. With the array complete, Harp was more powerful than ever before. The high-frequency antenna array was paired with the all-sky rheometer, which had been running continuously since 1995. The rheometer measures incoming noise from space and the Earth's surface. It picks up three things. First, man-made frequencies caused by microwaves, light bulbs with certain filaments, gas discharge lamps, and X-rays. Second, naturally occurring frequencies from planetary activity, like the UV and radiation energy the sun emits. Third, and perhaps the most interesting, preferred frequencies. Typically, these are used for discrete communications between military operations and government departments. In other words, the rheometer could monitor top secret radio communications. To be clear, scientists can't actually listen in and know what's said over preferred frequencies, but they can analyze details, like which direction a transmission came from. Researchers could use that data to identify where enemy forces are stationed and track upticks in their activity. Clearly, this kind of information could be very important for national defense, but not everyone was impressed. On May 1st, 2001, HARP's funding seemed threatened when President George W. Bush announced that he wanted a new framework for national defense, including a missile defense system. But HARP was officially a nuclear counterproliferation technology. Presumably, it should have fit neatly with Bush's goals. Unless HARP had some other purpose, and their transmission tracking capabilities were just a cover story. Or maybe the problem was that Bush was a Republican looking to cut spending, and HARP was about to triple its original budget. Either way, after the 9-11 attacks, no cost was too high for national security. The program restarted. Sometime after September 2001, the president of DARPA, Anthony Tether, headed a panel recommending that the HARP facility could study high-altitude nuclear detonation and how it impacted satellites. And his recommendations didn't go unnoticed. Word got to Russia, and they weren't buying the official story. In a panic, the state parliament reported on HARP's alleged capabilities to President Vladimir Putin. As far as they were concerned, HARP was a geophysical weapon, and it was time they evened the playing field. Coming up, Russia's version of HARP and allegations of electromagnetic weapons. Now, back to the story. After more than a decade of construction, ownership changes, and shifting goals, the HARP research facility was used for counter-nuclear efforts in 2001. The facility still hosted occasional public tours, but for the most part, the program was still shrouded in mystery. And for good reason. 
When Russia got word of HARP's capabilities, they increased activity at a facility of their own called Sura. Perhaps spurred by the Cold War-style competition, DARPA released a new set of goals for HARP. In a compendium published in August 2003, they outlined their intentions for the coming years. One rather vague objective was their hope to enable the development and deployment of future systems to provide protection for space-based assets from emergent asymmetric threats. Asymmetric threats are conflicts where the two sides aren't evenly matched. Uh, For example, if one country has a nuclear arsenal, but the other doesn't. Or if a fully equipped militia attacks unarmed civilians. In essence, DARPA wanted to produce counterterrorism technologies with HARP. Another objective involved HARP's underground facility detection capability, or detecting buried weapon caches and bases. And lastly, DARPA wanted to use HARP to improve radio communications. While these objectives weren't anything new, it was an early instance of these capabilities being clearly outlined for public purview. The organization also detailed plans to build a more robust antenna array, which would allow them to direct a greater wattage at the sky. Apparently, DARPA's needs had grown more extreme, and they needed more power to meet them. At this point, we should note that HARP was never as powerful as Bernard Eastland had originally wanted it to be. All his plans for a weather-altering death beam theoretically required a lot of electromagnetic energy. Even DARPA's new plans, which could produce 3.6 megawatts, fell short. For reference, 3.6 megawatts can power 1,400 to 3,200 homes for a year, and that's still less energy than Eastland's patents called for. The Air Force and various government officials maintained that HARP could never match Eastland's patents. It just wasn't feasible to channel that much power. And Eastland confirmed that HARP would never become the weather-altering death ray he'd originally proposed. But he added, they're getting up there. This is a very powerful device, especially if they go to the expanded stage. And that's exactly where they were, But talk of new developments sparked confusion about the existing technology. If DARPA was building new super-powerful machinery for satellite disruption and underground scanning, what had HARP been working on before? Whatever it was, one thing was sure. DARPA was ramping up HARP's functionality. With Russia working on their own facility and DARPA operations in full swing, It was no surprise that concerned citizens began to speak up. In May 2005, writer David Lamb urged Congress to add a stipulation to the Space Preservation Act. That was a bill that prevented governments from utilizing outer space for weapons. Basically, it made it illegal for people to make Death Stars or killer satellites. Lamb's addition further emphasized that the U.S. couldn't develop space-based electromagnetic weapons like Eastland's patented death ray. But Lamb's prodding proved unsuccessful. The Space Preservation Act did not pass. 
Without laws to stop them from developing electromagnetic technologies, harp construction continued. Finally, on March 9th, 2006, DARPA announced completion of the final phase. They had a 3.6 megawatt high-frequency transmitter and a variety of diagnostic instruments. With the improvements complete, HARP was also being overseen by the U.S. Air Force and the Navy. Now, if HARP really was a nuclear counterproliferation device, such capabilities were never reported. But there's no reason that DARPA should have handed it over unless they'd satisfied all research objectives. After all, DARPA is aimed at researching advanced defense projects. Whatever they'd wanted to yield with their studies, it seemed they'd found it. DARPA continued to include the HARP facility on its annual budget reports for the next three years. Once again, the official story and the U.S. government's behavior weren't matching up and a whistleblower was about to make things even more suspicious. Remember Bernard Eastland from the Harp's early days? A few months before DARPA finished the 3.6 megawatt high-frequency transmitter, Eastland filed a preliminary application for a new patent. This patent was titled Cosmic Particle Ignition of Artificially Ionized Plasma Patterns in the Atmosphere. The invention could allegedly heat up the ionosphere to excite the particles within it and, in turn, manipulate the weather. Notably, this mechanism would require lower power levels than his earlier HARP patent. Earlier, we mentioned that officials had repeatedly denounced the notion that HARP was a weather manipulation program. They'd maintained that the facility couldn't generate enough power. But Eastland's new patent disproved those arguments. The 3.6 megawatt antenna could perform the weather manipulation he'd theorized from the start. However, he wouldn't see the patent in use. Just two months after his patent was published, Bernard Eastland died on December 12, 2007. His cause of death has never been released. Whatever happened, his sudden death seems a lot like Nikola Tesla's. For the second time, a scientist with the keys to a directed energy weapon died right after crossing the government's radar. And in the months after Eastland's death, Harp went on lockdown. There were no more tours, no publications about new studies. Even though the facility was operating at full strength, its objectives remained a mystery until October 2008, when HARP hosted another campaign. It invited 31 investigators who conducted 42 different sets of experiments. Some artificially replicated the Northern Lights, others imaged irregularities in the ionosphere. It all seemed wholesome and straightforward, not the behavior you'd expect from alleged murderous mad scientists. And the military granted the public access to the facility once again in 2009. One visitor recalled his experience as he drove through the Harp complex, quote, every few hundred yards along the road, the forest is cleared. Those clearings contained enigmatic instruments. 
indescribable metal bits and tools that couldn't be identified by a layperson. But most striking was the plot of land where 180 silver poles rose from the ground, each one foot thick and 72 feet tall, set precisely 80 feet apart. Each pole had four arms that resembled helicopter rotors. It's safe to say this part of the facility was the infamous ionospheric research instrument, which houses the high-frequency antenna array. While the visitor found the facility visually striking, he didn't get the impression that it was hiding any secrets. Nearly four years later, on May 20th and 21st, 2013, the Space Studies Board of the National Research Council met the Department of Defense, Air Force Research Laboratory, and the National Science Foundation. They gathered to discuss HARP's future. On May 21st, the second day of the meeting, HARP was terminated. Their official reasoning is unknown. But the U.S. government wasn't just going to walk away from the facility. They ordered that the HARP complex be flattened out, covered in dirt, and regrassed with local vegetation. The estimated cost of the demolition and natural restoration was $15 million. That exceeded the cost of keeping HARP running. Someone really wanted to hide whatever had been done there, especially since they'd already paid nearly $300 million to build it. Surprisingly, the demolition plans were retracted. In 2015, the facility and its equipment were transferred to the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Although the Air Force wasn't involved anymore, the college could continue their research. Since then, students and scientists have utilized HART to study the ionosphere. They've even recreated an artificial aurora borealis using HARP's technologies. But man-made northern lights aren't bright enough to illuminate what exactly the government was using the facility for. We know that the Department of Defense used HARP to research nuclear defense tactics, but they never published any discoveries. HARP could allegedly sabotage radio communications and missiles, but there are no public statements on whether this function was ever applied. As for the X-rays of the subterranean Earth, there's no confirmation whether that ever happened. What we're left with is a mystery of mass proportions, which we'll explore next week. Since the U.S. government has been so tight-lipped about HARP's real applications, we have to turn to conspiracy theories to determine what really went on at the elusive Alaska facility. Conspiracy theory number one. HARP is Tesla's death ray, and it's being used to wage weather warfare. It might be able to trigger hurricanes or earthquakes, and it's possible that HARP researchers were accidentally responsible for global warming. Conspiracy theory number two. HARP sabotages spacecraft and is responsible for the failure of NASA's Columbia shuttle, which exploded during its return to Earth in 2003. And conspiracy theory number three, HARP is used for mind control. If that sounds unlikely, well, maybe that's what they want you to think. 
Between doomsday devices and conspiring mad scientists, Harp is a project straight out of a dystopian sci-fi novel. Only time will tell whether there's a chance to avert the weather-altering apocalypse, or if we're already living in it. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday to continue exploring the secrets behind HARP. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>